Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you, Dr. Aiken, and thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to be here today on campus at Southeastern. I thank God for what he's doing here and the work that God is using this seminary to do to impact the expansion of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. So thank you so much for allowing me to be here, and uh, thank you for letting me bring my wife, Christy, with me. It's a joy to have her here today, and then to be able to be here with Teddy, I tell you, one of the great joys of my life is that for the last 10 years together, Teddy and I have been serving there in Las Vegas, and God put us together. And we, we joke about it all the time. It's strange. God took a young white kid from Alabama, small town, and a young black kid from inner city Camden, New Jersey, and put us together in Las Vegas, Nevada. And God has birthed a church that is the most multicultural fellowship I've ever been a part of. We don't have a majority population in our fellowship, less than 50% white, black, Asian, Hispanic, Polynesian, 44 or five languages that we know of spoken inside of our fellowship. Uh, and it is a, it's a place that just looks like what heaven is going to look like. And we get the joy and honor of being there. And Teddy, man, you always minister to my soul. Man, Thank you for your... I, I wish you could know him, just his love and passion for Jesus, but what a blessing this morning. It, um, I um, did, as Dr. Aiken said, in September of 1999 is when it started. God interrupted my life and relocated my family to Las Vegas, Nevada. It started one morning in a, in a quiet time. I was just spending time with the Lord. At the time, I was living in Memphis, Tennessee. My dad was a pastor there at Kirby Woods Baptist Church, and I was serving as his senior associate pastor and everybody kind of assumed that I would be the next senior pastor there at Kirby Woods that nobody ever said that my dad and I never even had the conversation but it was kind of the unwritten assumption that that's what would happen Kirby Woods was a wonderful church ran over 2,000 people gives a million dollars a year away to missions and so we just thought that's what would happen and then one morning I'm reading Luke 4 and Jesus said his own quote was I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent for this purpose when I read it that morning, the Spirit of God just on the inside spoke deeply into my soul, and I knew that God was calling my family somewhere. So I went and got my wife, Christy. We knelt down there in our living room in Memphis, Tennessee, and said, Lord, yes. We don't know where. We don't know when, but the answer is yes. Now, we really thought at that time we were going overseas. We thought we were headed to some city on the other side of the world, but two weeks later, Johnny Hunt, who'd been a mentor, I know a lot of you know Johnny, he's on campus quite regularly, and uh, Johnny called me and said, Vance, our church is starting a church in Las Vegas, Nevada, and he said, God's put it on my heart, you're to be the pastor of that church. So two weeks earlier, we said, Lord, yes, we don't know where, we don't know when. Two weeks later, God fills in the blank with Las Vegas. Now, I got to be honest with you, you couldn't have picked the city that was further off my radar than Las Vegas, Nevada. I was raised in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Where I'm from, people don't go to Las Vegas, and if they do, they don't tell anybody. Where I grew up, they don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they believe you can smell it from there. It's really close. 
Uh, so you couldn't, I mean, you, God could have said any city in the world, and I would have been less surprised than when he said Las Vegas. But as soon as he said Vegas, we knew that's where God had called us. So we, 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 we resigned our church. I don't recommend this, but we never visited Las Vegas. But we resigned our church and relocated to Las Vegas, Nevada. First time my kids ever saw that city, we rolled into town to live there. Uh, but God has just done an unbelievable work over these last now 14 years. It's hard for me to even imagine that we went out there 14 years ago to plant a church back before church planting was quite as in vogue as it is today. Uh, but we went there, dropped in, a bunch of rednecks from the south originally was the ones that went out there. I mean, we looked like the Beverly Hillbillies riding into Las Vegas. The first two questions anybody would ask us are, where are you from, number one? And number two, what are you doing here? Uh, but God's done an unbelievable thing. And over the 14 years, if there's one subject that, that I could say God has just radically altered my life around, it's the subject that I want to talk to you about this morning. It's a subject that is actually referenced 100 different times in the New Testament. It's a subject that is referenced in 16 different books of the New Testament. Now, I don't know how you rate priority of things that are listed in Scripture, but if something's in the Bible, if it makes it in there once, it's significant. Amen? Amen? I told you our church is multicultural. One of the awesome parts of that is it's alive. So you're going to have to help me a little bit this morning or Teddy's going to have to lean in over here, all right? <laughs> if God puts something in the Word of God one time, that makes it significant and important. But if he mentions it a hundred times in two-thirds of the books of the New Testament, I would submit to you that's something we better pay attention to. As a matter of fact, one of the times he references it, he says... It is to be the number one passion of our life. He tells us to seek it above all other things. You know what it is? The kingdom of God. And here's what's tragic. There's probably not a more misunderstood or less prioritized principle in scripture in the New Testament church in the United States of America than the kingdom of God. To be honest, when God first called us to Las Vegas, if you'd asked me to define it, I, I, I would have probably pulled something from seminary, but I really couldn't have given you a real definition of the kingdom of God. I want to give you a definition that we've kind of been working on, and we're going to jump to a text of scripture here in just a moment, so just hang with me. But there's a definition that we've been working on for the last decade out there that's the way we have grown to define the kingdom of God. Here it is. It is God's sovereign activity in the world, resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign activity in the world. It's the big picture of what God is doing globally. And the ultimate result of that is people in every tribe, nation, and tongue being in right relationship with himself. You do understand that this thing called Christianity is moving somewhere. We are headed towards a grand and glorious climax. It is not going to always be like it is right now. 
One day, the Bible says, the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ are going to be raised with him, and we'll join them together in the air, and the Bible says we'll always be with the Lord, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, and Revelation chapter 5 tells us what that glorious climax is, is the kingdom of God. This whole thing is about the kingdom of God being built. If you'd ask me for most of my life as a Christian, what's the book of Acts about? I would have told you the book of Acts is about the kingdom of or about the, the local New Testament church. It's the birth of the New Testament church, the growth of the New Testament church, the expansion of the New Testament church. But did you know that's not what the book of Acts is about? Let me show it to you. Turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 3. And turn there quick, because we're, we're about to get to a text where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. I want you to see what, what, what the writer here says. And I don't have to give you the context. You know what this is. Acts 1, 3 says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning... I want you to say it out loud. The what? Kingdom of God. You see it? The last 40 days Jesus is on earth physically. He has 40 days left with his disciples. And the Bible says for those 40 days he makes appearances to his disciples. And yet during those 40 days all Jesus talks about is one thing. We're so excited as Southern Baptists get to Acts 1-8. We skip right over Acts 1-3. The kingdom of God for 40 days, it's all he talks about. Now, turn all the way to the end of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. Look what it says. This is talking about the apostle Paul. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. Now, before you misunderstand that, Paul is not here on vacation. He's not in a house that he's rented Paul is living under house arrest. The Bible says he's welcoming anybody who gets near. And look what it says. He's preaching the what? Say it out loud. Kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? The book of Acts opens with Jesus spending his last 40 days with his disciples. And all he talks about is one thing. Kingdom of God. The book of Acts closes with the apostle Paul under house arrest. Chained to a guard there. Living in isolation. Welcoming anybody who'll get near him. And all Paul's talking about is one thing. The kingdom of God. There's the bookends of the book of Acts. Now, in the middle, we see the birth and growth of the local New Testament church. But here's what I want you to understand. The church is simply a temporary tool established by Jesus to gather people and teach them about the King, disciple them and send them out for the expansion of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. The church is not the goal. The church is the tool. The kingdom of God is the goal. Now, let me, let me prove it to you. All churches die. 
If you don't believe me, get on an airplane. Go try to find the church at Philippi, Colossae, Ephesus, Thessalonica. You go try to find it. You, listen, I've been in Ephesus. I've seen the ruins of the church in Ephesus. It does not exist anymore. It is dead. The church that Teddy and I pastor in Las Vegas, Hope Church, one day Hope Church will die. They all do. Churches are born, they live, they die. They have life cycles. Why? Because they're temporary tools established by Jesus for the expansion. The big picture is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is eternal. Go all the way to Revelation chapter 5 when we're gathered around the throne from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The Bible says he's purchased us with his blood to make us into his kingdom. The kingdom of God is the goal. Now that raises a question, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. How do we connect the local church to the big picture of what God is doing globally in expanding His kingdom? Because listen, there's a lot of churches in America that are existing day in and day out completely disconnected from the idea that they're a temporary tool established. Imagine if you hired a construction company to build a build a beautiful new building here on campus, Dr. Aiken, and you pull up on campus and the construction workers are all working on their tools. Nobody's building the building. Now, they may have some of the finest tools in the industry, but you hired them to build a building, not sharpen their tools and make their tools. I'm afraid today that God in heaven has birthed us as the local church to be about the building and expanding of his kingdom, and we've shifted all of our attention to making sure we have the finest, sharpest, best tools in the industry. There's a church in the New Testament that's a great example of this. I wish we had time to go through the whole letter, but it's the the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi understood... If you have your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to spend the rest of our time here. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul is wrapping up this letter. And you need to understand that the the book of Philippians is really a thank you letter that Paul is writing to the New Testament church here in Philippi. And he's writing it to thank them. He opens the letter in chapter 1 by saying, I thank my God in my every remembrance of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says, man, from the beginning, you got it. You understood. And I thank Thank you for that. So we get to the end of the letter. Let's pick it up. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Paul says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then the verse we all love. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Problem is, that's a conditional promise based on what he's written in the rest of this book. Verse 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're living in a day when there's a lot of emphasis on church planting. And I I love church planting. I'm a church planter. We have now... Dr. Aiken had the privilege, this year we'll start our 21st church out of our church there in Las Vegas. I have a passion for seeing the church reproduce and multiplied. But if we don't understand the principle that I want to share with you today... 
we're missing the real end game of what church planting is all about. Let me share with you three principles out of this text description. Number one, when God births a church, it's always for something bigger. When God births a church, it's always for something bigger. On Paul's second missionary journey, Paul planted the church at Philippi. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. He meets Lydia, leads Lydia to Jesus. Lydia begins to allow people to meet in her home. Out of her home, they lead a demon-possessed girl to Christ. She becomes a part of this church. They get thrown in jail for that. They lead a Philippian jailer to Christ in his whole household. And you got this brand-new church in Philippi that has been born. But look what Paul says when he's writing here in verse 15. He says, you guys know that was the first preaching of the gospel. That's a significant statement because what Paul is doing here is he's taking them back in their mind. He's writing this letter about 10 years after he planted this church. And and you and I read over it with no emotion at all. But when the people who got this letter read that statement, they started reflecting back on the early days when that church began. Paul says, you guys remember the first, you remember when the gospel began in Philippi? And Lydia's thinking, oh man, I remember. I remember when I met Paul by the riverbank. That little demon-possessed girl, oh, I remember when he set me free from that demon and Christ came in and filled my life. And that jailer remembered that night that Paul and Silas were singing and all the others that had come to Christ. They remembered the the beginning of the gospel. And that's really the word for first preaching here. It's the word beginning. Here's what Paul's saying to them. You guys understood that when the church was born, the church came together, the church began to have ministries, and the church began to meet needs, and we began to worship together and fellowship together and have a great crowd and a great time. Paul says, you remember, you know, that wasn't the end. That was just the beginning. You see, too often we think the church is the finish line. The goal is to plant the church and get it going, have a crowd, establish ministries, establish programs, build our staff, build our buildings, and we can sit back and go, man, look, we did it. Mission accomplished. Paul says the church is not the finish line. The church is the starting line. It's just the beginning of God's activity. When God birthed our church in Las Vegas 14 years ago, God started this work and now we're 14 years in and God's done so much more than we could have ever asked, thought, or imagined. It's been unbelievable to see thousands of people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and see hundreds sent out to plant churches throughout the western United States to be working on four continents around the world. When God birthed our church, he did it for something so much bigger than us. Now, let me tell you a quick story. About three years ago, our church decided we were going to adopt through the International Mission Board one of these unreached, unengaged people groups. And I know you know what those are. You talk about them here all the time. So we worked with the International Mission Board, and we adopted one in the Arabian Peninsula. And when we adopted it, the International Mission Board even said, you do know what you're doing. That may be the most difficult place in the world. We said, well, we don't know what we're doing, but we believe that's where God's leading us. And so we adopted this people group, and right now, it's not even remotely possible for us to get into that nation. We've had to pull missionaries out of where we're trying to reach from the IMB. We we can't even get in there right now. We're thinking, how in the world do we reach these people? Well, let let me take you back a few years earlier. About eight years ago, we had a young girl in Vegas walk in our doors off the streets who was 
needing financial assistance, financial help. We connected with her and we, we started meeting some physical needs. Ultimately, we led her to Christ and she got in a small group, began to be discipled, began to grow in her relationship with God. And about six months after she came to Christ, I got an email from her mother. Her mother writes me from the other side of the world and says, Pastor, you don't know me, but my daughter's been estranged from our family for 10 years and we didn't know where in the world she was. She was raised in a Christian home, but we, we'd lost track of her. We didn't know if she was even dead or alive. But she said, my daughter's recently reached out and she's told us the story of what God's done in her life and how God saved her and how your church has discipled her and come around her. And she said, you can just hear the emotion as this mom's pouring this out. And she says, Pastor... It, I am now the executive assistant to the undersecretary at the United Nations on behalf of this particular nation in East Africa. She said, if your church ever wants to do anything in our nation, all you have to do is ask, and you have an open invitation to come do anything in our country. Now, that's an awesome enough story, but we've adopted this unreached people group. We don't know how to get to them. So missiologists told us, study the globe and find out where they live outside of their homeland. You go reach them there, and then they can go from there back to their homeland as missionary. So we did. And there are only four places on planet Earth that these people live outside of their homeland in the Arabian Peninsula. Guess where one of them is? In that nation in East Africa where that mom said, anything you want to do in our country, you got an open invitation to come. Now, now I want you to hear this. We thought we were paying some girl's electricity bill. God was opening the door to a people that had never had access to the gospel on the other side of the globe. Here's what I want you to understand. When God births a church, it's always about something bigger. You see, God didn't birth our church so Teddy and I could have a job in Las Vegas and be able to gather a bunch of people together and worship on the weekends. God didn't birth our church just so we could plant some churches in the western United States. You see, God had his heart set on a people in the Arabian Peninsula that had never had access to the gospel. And when God birthed our church, God birthed our church for something so much bigger than us. Listen, we are living in the greatest thing. Listen, you're in seminary right now. Did you know that God has called you in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive? These are the greatest days of harvest that we've ever seen. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ today on a daily basis around the world than at any other single time in human history. You didn't hear what I just said. Because if I did, if you did, you'd have said something. I mean, you're here to be a part of the Great Commission, amen? Listen, we're living in the greatest global harvest in human history. Never since the days Jesus walked on the earth have we seen more of a global harvest. And here's the reality. God's called you and me for such a time as this. When God births a church, it's always for something bigger. But let me give you the second principle. When God births a church, it's his invitation for us to join in his kingdom activity. Look at it back in verse 15. Paul said, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. The word shared here is an important Greek word. It's a Greek word that we've transliterated into an English word. It's the Greek word koinonia. We know, most often think that means fellowship, which means coffee pots and donuts and casseroles, right? 
But this word literally means to share in the life of another. Paul writes to this church and he says, Nobody shared with me. You see, the church saw in the Apostle Paul the opportunity to join in God's kingdom activity. And so they shared in God's global activity through a relationship with the Apostle Paul. You say, how did they do that? Well, there's a lot of ways that they did that. We don't have time to unpack them all. I'm going to give you just a couple. Number one, they cultivated a heart for the kingdom by praying. This church prayed for Paul. As you read the letter to, to the Philippian church, you'll read over and over again, Paul prayed for them, they prayed for Paul. Some of the greatest verses on prayer in all the Bible are right here in chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right here in Philippians. This was a church that prayed for Paul. You say, man, does prayer really make a difference? <laughs> I'll tell you another quick story. I got to Las Vegas. We roll into town. Been in town about a week and a half, and our telephone rings. I go to answer the telephone, or my wife actually answers the telephone, and on the other end of the line, my wife and I are both from Alabama. She's, I'm from a small town in Alabama. She's from an even smaller town in Alabama. This sweet lady who called on the other end of the line spoke a real broken English. She was from the Philippines, and my wife, God bless her, she was so southern, she really couldn't understand anything the lady was saying. So she looks at me and says, and she just hands me the phone. So I take the phone, and on the other end of the line is this lady named Letty Peralta, and Letty says, uh, Pastor, can I tell you a story? I said, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. <laughs> now, since then, I've learned you better be careful offering that offer in Las Vegas because there's some stories, man. But Letty says, Pastor, I'm from the Philippines. I moved to Hong Kong to make money for my family as a housemaid. She said, while living in Hong Kong, I met an American family, moved in with them, became the caretaker of their home. She said, my American family worked for a major computer corporation in America. She said, after some time there in Hong Kong, my American family moved to the United States of America, got all the paperwork approved, and I moved with them back to the United States of America. She said, we moved to a suburb north of Atlanta, Georgia, called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, while living in Woodstock, Georgia, I visited a church called the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, and heard an Indian preacher named Johnny Hunt preach the gospel. She said, I'd never heard the Great Commission explained the way that Johnny Hunt explained it. But my family wasn't in Woodstock very long. We relocated, and we now live in Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, Pastor, I've lived in Las Vegas for a year and a half, and I've prayed every day of my life since being here that the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Could you please tell me who sent you here? Ten days earlier, my family rose into a city we'd never been to before. And let me tell you what I learned. We didn't go to start something. We went to get in on something that God was doing long before we stepped into the stream of it. And something that God is going to continue to be doing long after we step out of the stream of that. We are simply entrusted for a season with stewarding a dimension of God's kingdom activity in that city. And if you understand that, that shapes the way you hold it, right? 
doesn't belong to you. It's His. We're simply stewards of what belongs to Him for a season. But here's what I want you to hear me say. We're 14 years in. We've seen God do all this unbelievable stuff. And people will call and say, Pastor, could you please tell me, man, I want to do an interview with you. How, how did this happen? And I'm not trying to be super spiritual. I'm just trying to be honest. One lady from the Philippines asked God to do it. And we've been riding a wave of the favor of God for 14 years. Listen, there's no other explanation. There were three of us from Alabama and Tennessee dropped into Las Vegas. You couldn't have picked three guys that knew less than we did. I'm not making it up. When I left the North American Mission Board after my assessment process, I just had a meeting with the person that used to be the secretary to the vice president's office that I was in. She said, Vance, after you left, we walked in and said, dear God, they don't have a shot. They told Johnny, Johnny, you need somebody over 35 who's from the West, who's planted before. I was 28. I'd never been west of the Mississippi River, and I'd never planted a church. How did all of that happen? Let me tell you how it happened. One lady from the Philippines was desperate for God, and she said, oh, God, would you do something? And God moved mightily. We can cultivate a heart. When's the last time your church, Tuesday night, our church gathered by the hundreds, just on our face before God for an hour and a half, nothing but just praying and asking God to move in our city? We can pray. Let me tell you something else we can do. This is going to be the last one. We can prioritize the kingdom by sending. Look at verse 18. He says, I've received everything and amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus. Who in the world is Epaphroditus? Well, it's a person. It's not something you take penicillin to get rid of. It's a person. (laughs) Epaphroditus was a guy in the Philippines, or I'm sorry, in Philippi. (laughs) Got the Philippines on my brain. A guy in Philippi that somebody led to Jesus out of Lydia's home. They began to disciple him. And one day they took up an offering and said, we need somebody to take this offering to the Apostle Paul. Who will go? Epaphroditus said, I'll go. I mean, I'm no preacher. (laughs) I don't have any training, but I can carry a bag of money with the best of them. You say, how do you know that? We don't have time to read it, but you read it later. Philippians 2, 25. Paul writes and says, Epaphroditus was your messenger and minister to my need, but now Paul's sending him back to the church at Philippi to report about the work. How do you know he's sending him back? Where do you think we got the letter from? Epaphroditus is the one that carried the letter back to the church to thank them for their investment in the life of the Apostle Paul and his ministry in expanding God's kingdom. Let me tell you who Epaphroditus is. Here's who he is. The first recorded short-term missionary in the Bible. He's a short-term mission team. They commissioned him. They sent him out. A few weeks, a few months, we don't know. Then he comes back to the church at Philippi to report about all that God had done and to thank them for the investment they'd made in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We can send. We tell people, we have our membership class next week. Every time we'd host a membership gathering at our church, we tell them, if you join this fellowship, we're going to do everything we can to talk you into leaving. And they laugh like that. And I say, you're laughing now. But we've literally sent out hundreds that have either gone to plant other churches, engage with church planters and plant new works, or some are now serving internationally overseas, engaging in the mission. Listen, they're not our people. They're His people. 
Our job is to send them. Rick Warren said it best, the, the success of a church is not measured by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. Are we sending? It's another one here we don't have time to talk about, the giving component. We can invest in the kingdom by giving. That's really what these verses are all about. But when God births a church, it's born for something bigger. When God births a church, it's His invitation for us to get in on what He's doing. And here's the last thing, and I'll close. When God births a church, it's for His glory. Look how He closes this. Now to our God and Father be the glory. It's interesting. He opens the letter by thanking the church at Philippi. I thank God for you. But he closes the letter by saying, ultimately, it's really not about you. To our God and Father be the glory. When God births a church, it's always for his glory. That his glory may be made known in that church. That his glory may be made known in that city. And that his glory may be made known to the ends of the earth. That his kingdom may be expanded. The kingdom of God is the end game. Our role is to so engage the church in the expansion of the kingdom that we're a part of the big picture of what God's doing that's going to last forever and forever and forever. Lord, thank you for your word today. God, use it for your glory. May you speak to us. Holy Spirit of God, as only you can right now, would you take these truths and speak to our heart. Lord, have your way. We bless you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.com. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.